Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Spirit of Grace Church. I'm so glad that you're able to be with us tonight. I'm praying that God will speak to us in a special way. If you have your Bibles tonight, if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 20, uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, but I'm going to read them throughout my lesson tonight, so we're not going to read it right up front. Uh, but this is the parable of the workers, the landowner, and uh, I want to look at this subject tonight, the scandal of grace or scandalous grace. And uh, it's my prayer tonight that somebody would receive grace in a brand new way. As we look at how Jesus dealt with people and some of his parables, I, I discover some episodes that I call grace encounters. And these encounters uh, radically changed people's lives 2,000 years ago, and I, I believe they can change ours as well. In fact, it's been said that Christianity is supremely or primarily uh, a religion of grace, and that is certainly true. However, even so, grace is not well understood and oftentimes not well, not really believed or well received. Uh, we use this word, grace, a great deal, but uh, we rarely think about what it means as uh, how it pertains to you and I in relation to Jesus. And if there's anyone in the world that really should know about grace, it should be us. Uh, it should be those of us that have experienced it. And so tonight I want to talk a little bit about grace. In his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, the author Philip Yancey pointed out that part of our problem is in the nature of grace itself the very nature of what it is. Grace is scandalous. Um, it's hard to accept. Grace is hard to accept. It's hard to believe, and grace is hard to receive even. Grace shocks us in what it has to offer, and it's truly not of this world. It's, it's of God. It frightens us with what it does for us and for others. You see, grace teaches us that God does for others what we would never do for them. We would save the not-so-bad people or the pretty good people or the ones that didn't get on our nerves, but God starts with the gutter dwellers, if you will, the murderers, the liars, the cheats, and then works down from there. Uh, grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. It's a gift that costs everything to the giver and costs nothing to the receiver. It is given to those who do not deserve it. The technical definition that you often hear of when you mention grace is unmerited favor of God towards man. But we barely recognize it and we hardly appreciate it when we understand what grace is. And that's why God alone gets the glory in who you are. He did all the work on the cross and so he gets the glory of what you have become. And so in the end, grace means that no one is too bad to be saved. No one is too bad to have a relationship. No one is too bad to, to be blessed by God. In fact, God specializes in blessing and saving and keeping and delivering really bad people. Uh, do you have some things in your background tonight or that you would be ashamed to talk about in public or uh, you just have tried to bury it in the recesses of your memory? Don't be ashamed. Don't fear. God knows all about it already, and his grace is greater than anything that you have hidden in your closet, if you will. Grace also means, so, so first of all, grace means that 
you're, you're never too bad to be saved. But grace also means that some people may be too good to be saved. Yes, I said that, too good to be saved. And what I mean by that is they may have such a high opinion of themselves that they think that they don't need the grace of God. God's grace can only step into your life when you are willing and at the point and desperate enough to receive the grace of the Lord. And so tonight we're looking at a parable that is not one of the more popular stories because it strikes really at the heart of, of our sense of fairness and justice. It just doesn't make sense to us. It's scandalous. It's it's something that we just don't really grasp a hold of, especially here in America, because it's we're all trying to balance what's fair and what's just and and this parable is does not line up for us. So I'm going to read in, in Matthew again, chapter 20. I'm just going to read the first two verses, and then we'll say some things, and then we'll read some more verses. But verse 1 and 2 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers to work in his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarii a day, he sent them into his vineyards. This would have been a, a typical day in Jewish culture in the days of the Bible. Just as today we have employment agencies or temp agencies, in the first century there were places where laborers would gather each morning to hopefully get hired at least for the day, if not longer. They would seek to work. And these workers were usually unskilled at a particular trade. They were probably near the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. In fact, Many of them probably lived at a level just right above beggar. Uh, they worked from job to job. It doesn't mean they were lazy. It just means that they were unskilled and thus found it hard to find work sometimes. And working from job to job, sometimes that was for a day, sometimes it was for a week. Um, but because they had no guarantee for work the next day uh, or beyond what they were doing at the time, they would gather in the marketplace before dawn to be available for the uh, landowners to come and begin to hire them, at least for the day, if nothing else. And so we kind of get the picture here that uh, the landowner is coming into the marketplace or getting ready, and he's finding these people uh, waiting at the marketplace looking for a job. Now, I've never done this, but I've read about it, and I can imagine Working in a vineyard was not easy, especially at that time. At harvest time, which was about this time that Jesus is speaking here in Palestine, all of the grapes had to be picked, often in temperatures of probably 100 degrees or more. And just as the crops in our area today have to be harvested when the weather is good and right, so too the grapes had to be picked uh, quickly before the bad weather set in. And so if for some reason the grapes were slow in ripening or whatever, the time for harvesting could be significantly challenged or shortened. And so consequently, the grape harvest uh, was a hectic and a demanding time. And so these workers were promised a the pay of a denarii for a, a full day's work. And this was basically the wage of, uh, in those days, of a Roman soldier. And while that doesn't mean much to you and I, it meant a great deal to those of that day because being a Roman soldier was not the most glorious or prestigious job, but it was higher up in the social spectrum or the social ladder than the common laborer. And so as such, the promise of a denarii 
uh, to these workers would have been quite generous for a day's work. Uh, and so they agreed to this rate with great eagerness. And, and the equivalent today is somewhere, if I do my math right, somewhere around $50. And so the landowner was promising them to pay $50 for the day's work. Uh, now, that's $50 back in that day. So it was good pay. Now, this particular landowner's property uh, seems to be obviously large because he ends up needing more laborers to get the field taken care of. And so in verse 3, he says, verse 3 to 7, he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. Now, the, the phrase, I will pay you whatever is right, in verse 5, shows us that these workers must have been aware of who the landowner was, and had no doubt that they, and so they trusted the landowner was a man of his word, and that while he doesn't particular doesn't promise a particular wage, uh, these workers knew that whatever they paid him, or whatever he paid them, would be a fair price. And so then the, the phrase in verse 6, as I said earlier, found still others standing around, doesn't denote laziness, it just, but rather unemployment. And uh, that's what they did. They waited around until somebody would hire them. And this pattern continued uh, for the hiring at the third, the sixth, and the eleventh hour. It goes by the hours. The Jewish uh, calendar, the Jewish clock, if you will, went from 6 a.m. was the first hour of the day and the 6 p.m. was the last hour of the day. And so 6, 9, 12, 3, and 5, the landowner goes out to hire these laborers. And it's at this point in time when he hires these last this last hour from 5 to 6, it, this parable takes a drastic turn. By the 11th hour, 5 o'clock, the work on most crops, if you will, or farms would have been winding down. The laborers would have probably that were waiting for work at this time were probably thinking, okay, we're not getting paid today. Not sure what we're going to do for dinner. They've probably lost hope. Yet this day was different because of the generosity of the landowner. And it's clear that he's interested not only in his vineyard, but also in the un unemployed person and wanted to, to be able to help them as well. So we see that there's really two groups of workers here. Uh, there is those that he hired before 6 a.m. and they negotiated a, a wage for the day's work. And then there are those that were hired at the third, the sixth, the ninth, and the eleventh hour that were hired without a contract, that were going just trusting the goodness of the landowner. And so now we get to verse number eight, which is closing out the workday. And it simply says this. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. A again, I said it, I think on Sunday or something this week that everything we do, God does the opposite direction. The typical mode of payment back then was first come, first served. And now Jesus is turning it around, not surprisingly, with 2020 hindsight. Jesus turns around and says, last come, first served. Uh, I'm sure those who worked all day were beginning to get a little bit confused, a little bit upset. I know we would. 
Uh, and so we continue in verse 9 and 10 to, to see kind of what happens. And when those who came, and when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarii. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarii. So even though Jesus doesn't say it in this passage, the implication is clear. All the workers, every single one of them, up to those hired first were paid a denarii. And because of human nature, I can imagine what I would do, and we can imagine how the laborers who worked all day felt as they got wages, uh, or they got um, the same work that the people that worked hardly at all got. The natural thought, if the if the owner gave them 50 bucks for working for one hour, we can't imagine what he's going to pay us for working uh, 12 hours. But their hopes were dashed when they received the exact same thing of the man that worked one hour, they got paid the same thing. And you can see their attitude starting to spill out in verses 11 and 12, because it says when they when they received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the heat of the day. And you read that, and in our mentality of 2021, we say, yeah, that makes sense. It doesn't make sense that I have to pick up the slack for that person. It doesn't make sense that he worked for an hour and we worked for 12 and they're getting the same pay. It's not fair. It's unjust. But grace isn't just. Grace is scandalous. And working in the vineyard is a hard, is, is very hard work. It involves laboring uh, on the hillside in the heat of the day with very few breaks. And so I can I can see where the worker that worked from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., I can sympathize with these workers. I can understand even the, the reason that they're complaining. Their joy of getting a great day's wage turned to anger as they, re, as they realized that they were receiving the same pay as those that had worked for only one hour. And so as such, they were determined not to leave until they received quote-unquote satisfaction from the landover, landowner. But here's where we find this is only a symptom of the real problem, which is that they were upset that the landowner had made the other workers equal to them. So verse 13 to 15 gives us this, this owner's response once they started complaining. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So here the owner completely refutes the worker's complaints and argument with a crushing blow. The word friend there, by the way, is not a term of endearment for a close friend. It's rather a casual companion, if you will. And so since the landowner is addressing one person, it seems to be, it's the implication that this friend was probably the spokesman of the group, what we would classify today maybe even as the union steward. And so then the owner clearly states, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree to work for a denarii for, for the day? Before six in the morning, you had agreed to it. They had agreed to this, this price and they were excited about that price. And at the time, $50 was a fair price. That's generous wage of, for, for the work that they were going to do. Both sides had lived up to the end of their bargain. The, the workers worked and the owner paid what they had negotiated 
before they were hired. But what the landowner paid the other laborers or what the landowner did with his own money was really no business of anyone else. In fact, if the landowner had wanted to give half of all of his wealth to one of the workers, a lot of us would classify him as generous. These people were saying, no, so, not so. They uh, were basically claiming that it was unjust. They were criticizing and complaining. And so then Jesus brings this to the end of the, the parable in verse 16. He says it this way. So the last will be first and the first will be last. See, in the kingdom of God, our perceived position makes no difference because God shows no partiality. In God's economy, and I'm not talking just finance, I'm just talking in the whole concept of how the kingdom of God works. In his economy, things are often just the opposite of what we would expect. You see, grace has an edge to it, doesn't it? It's, it grace can be sharp. It, it can be challenging. In fact, grace can be disturbing. If you were honest with yourself tonight, you and I would have to admit that grace even scandalizes us from time to time. Because grace is not the way we normally do things. So how do we apply this parable to our lives tonight? Do we simply accept the fact that others may be saved or blessed or honored uh, later than us or, or will do less work than us in the kingdom of God? If you're like me, we can handle that. I can, I can get on board with that. But I think there's more to this passage that God wants us to learn. And so I want to see, I want to give you four application areas. Um, and, and I'm glad I can do the list. We we had uh, were able to be at Destiny Leaders this last week, and Dr. Brassfield says he does everything by a list. So I'm doing a Dr. Brassfield list. Four things, four applications from this parable. First of all, grace reminds us that God's favor is a gift. Grace reminds us that God's favor is a gift. Remember the problem, quote unquote, in this text. It's not the injustice of a mean and cruel landowner. These workers weren't complaining because the landowner was cruel. The problem for these workers is the scandal of a gracious and loving farmer. He's gracious and loving, and that was their problem. Verse 15 asks the question, are you envious because I'm generous? One of the most harmful things or sins, if you will, that we can commit as God's children is taking the grace of God for granted. Not so much taking it for granted on our own, but taking it for granted in others. John MacArthur put it this way. He said this, the charge of unfairness was not grounded in a love for justice, but in the selfish assumption that the extra pay they wanted was pay that they deserved. Say it again. The charge of unfairness was not grounded in a love for justice, but in the selfish assumption that the extra pay that they wanted was pay that they deserved. You see, it's easy to take grace for granted. There have been times, uh, this was years ago now, believe it or not, we had a church basketball team when I lived in Kansas City, and we played, uh, every week we played, we were in a church league. And uh, so I was guarding a guy out at the top of the key, and he took this crazy, crazy hook shot, and unbelievably it went in. And so as he was clapping his hands and strutting around, I went up to him and I just, I just said, you know, there's a term in the Bible that explains what just happened here. And that shot was grace. And uh, he laughed. And so the next time he got the ball, he went even further from the basket and attempted another hook shot. And this one missed badly. 
And I'm sure it was probably because of my tenacious defense or something like that. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. This time I said, you pushed grace a bit too far that time because it's a gift that you shouldn't expect every time you shoot. Uh, it's a gift. It doesn't happen all the time. Grace is something that is given to us by God when God wants to give it to us. You see, after a time, you and I come to the point where we start demanding grace, just like the workers of this parable. Verse 10 says that they expected to receive more. They expected more grace because they lasted longer, because they worked more. But in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as merit. God's grace is granted according to God's own pleasure. I want to say that again. God's grace is granted according to his own pleasure. That's scandalous in our eyes. That doesn't always make sense to us. I have discovered that there was another parable that, that made the rounds during the time of Jesus. And in that version, the workers who came last worked so hard that they produced uh, more than all the others put together. They earned the salary they got. And that makes more sense to you and I, us capitalist Americans. But that's not the story Jesus told. Everyone got the same no matter how much they produced. And many of us identify with the employees in this parable who end up put in a full day's work rather than just the add-ons at the end of the day. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers, if you will, or uh, and then we question the employer's strange behavior because it baffles us, it confuses us. But don't miss the point of the story. The point of the story here is this. God dispenses gifts, not wages. Let me say that again because it's a very key point. God dispenses gifts, not wages. If it's a wage that you want from God, the Bible says that our salary is very clear. It's already figured out for us. If you want to be rewarded for your merit, the Bible says it this way. If you want to be compensated for your work in, in Romans 6.23, it's very clear. The wages of sin is death. But if we want to receive what God wants to freely give us, this gift that he wants to give us, then the last part of that verse offers us something that's far better than our compensation or our wages. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, God's favor is grace is a, is a gift. And so let me mention two truths here at this point in time. This is two things within the four that can radically transform the way of your thinking and the way of your living. And here they are. Number one, there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do that make him love you more. And second, there's nothing you can do that makes God love you less. He can't love you more. He can't love you less. He can love you because that's who he is. And like a gift, the only thing that we can do with grace is to receive it, to wrap our arms around it. Secondly, grace keeps us from looking down on ourselves. How many of you ever struggled with the feeling of incompetence? I know I have it several times. Have you ever experienced discontentment, ever wished for a greater gift or a, or a more important ministry? Or have you ever felt inferior to someone else in the church or in the world, in your family, and thus less important? Well, think for me, with me for a minute about those who were not hired till 5 o'clock in the afternoon. They watched and waited all day long while other workers were hired. They knew that they would probably not get paid that day and that, that, and that they probably would not be able to buy food for their family for dinner that night. 
And so all day long, they're being passed over just like that little boy that was chosen last for the kickball team. However, this story shows us that the Lord's passion was for the forgotten. Usually the best and the strongest are always picked first, if you will. These workers were probably the leftovers. They probably were the least skilled individuals that were there. So who in their right mind would pick them, right? But these workers really represent each one of us. When you think about it, what do you really have to offer the Lord? We always say, well, let's offer it to the Lord. What do you really have? Does he need your intellect? Uh, don't think so. Uh, does he need your strength? Does he need your money? Does he need your good deeds? Well, obviously, the answer to all of those questions is absolutely not. So let our confidence and joy in this life be based not on what you and I have or do not have or what we can do or can't do. Rather, our confidence is in whom we have. Who do you have a part of your life? For on the last day when we stand before our Savior, like Pastor Sabin used to say, there's not any difference between, there's very little difference between the, those two people standing at the foot of the, the cross. And likewise, when we stand before our Savior, there's not going to be really any distinction between a preacher and a taxi cab driver. No one is worthier than someone else to receive what God has for them. We're all unworthy. I didn't say worthless, but unworthy. That brings us to number three. Grace makes us equal to everybody else. You see, the, word, the, the complaint of the workers in verse 12 fascinates me a little bit. You have made them equal to us. You have made them equal to us. That was their complaint. The all-day workers don't complain about their wages because they know their pay was generous. They are upset because they wanted to be superior. But grace makes us equal to everyone else. The word complain is, is in the imperfect tense in this passage, which means simply that it wasn't a one-time complaint. It wasn't just, it was a constant state of grumbling and whining and complaining. And this really helps us see what kind of workers they are. Or were they really, they didn't say, you have put us on par with the latecomers. Instead, they grumbled, you have put them, the latecomers, on a par with us. In other words, they were not only dissatisfied with the fact that they, uh, what they had received, they were also envious of what had been given to the others because they thought of themselves higher. They emphasized that they bore the burden of the day, the heat of the day, the sweltering of the, the day. They bore all that and they, were, and they compared themselves to these upstarts who only worked for an hour. These workers uh, thought they were worth a lot more. And there's a part of us that wants God to give us grades so that we can compare ourselves with other people's grades. Uh, however, the, if, if the truth were known, many of us think God has given us an A while others are barely, barely passing the class. So the question is, do you put yourself above others? If you don't rejoice when God gives the five o'clock employee the same thing you do, is your complaint that God has made them equal with you. I want you to notice uh, the tragic chain of events that is represented by these workers. Um, first of all, they start comparing themselves to one another. This led them to coveting, which led them to complaining, which led ultimately them criticizing the landowner. So my question is, do you struggle with coveting, complaining, and criticizing? If so, you're probably comparing yourself with others. 
stop comparing yourself with others. God declares that in the economy of grace, we're all equal. Whether we work for an hour or 12 hours, we're all equal. In fact, Romans 12.3 uh, reminds us and challenges us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Let's stop being so hard on other people. Uh, stop looking for things that don't seem fair. Life isn't fair. God's not fair. God's, God's just, but he may not be fair. Refuse to criticize. Really think about this. Uh, I was thinking about this this afternoon. It's really ironic. We want grace for ourselves, but we don't always give it to others. We want grace for ourselves, but we don't always give it to others. And it, it's amazing to me how grace applied to me always seems good and nice and right, but grace applied to others or given to others frankly disturbs us. That person doesn't deserve grace. Well, look in the mirror, Tim. Neither do you. Be gracious with others. Cut others some slack. Your sin doesn't smell any better than my sin. It really doesn't. Let's treat people the way we want to be treated because grace makes us equal to everyone else. And then fourth, grace offers us a fresh start. The Christian life is really a series of new beginnings. That, that that's That's what grace really is all about. It's about being able to start again every day. No one is first, no one is last. I'm not better than you, you're not better than me. You're no worse than I am, and I'm no worse than you are. We are all covered by the grace of Christ. It's why I think Jesus used such radical language in verse 16 of this passage when he talks about the first and the last. Notice what he said. He said, the last will be first and the first will be last. But also, if you'll look back to chapter 19 of Matthew, We've been reading in Matthew 20, but in the last verse of chapter 19, just preceding this parable, he says it this way, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. He changes the order. I don't think he does that accidentally. I don't think there's accidents in the word of God. The first and the last, the last and the first all blend or blur together. It's as, it's as if Jesus is trying to make the point that first and last don't really matter in the kingdom of God. Grace is not about finishing first. It's not about finishing fat, last. It's not about counting at all. Grace is not about counting. It's not about keeping score. It's about having a do-over. It's about having a fresh start whenever you need it. It's about being able to get up when you fall down. Do you want a fresh start today? Do you need a new beginning? You can have one because grace is still available. So here's the thing. How do you find God's grace? You have to just ask for it. it, it that, that's really it. The reality is it's that simple. The more you feel your need for grace, the better candidate you are to receive it. Hold out your empty hands, your empty heart, and ask God for his grace. You won't be turned away. It's never too late. Until the trumpet sounds, it's never too late. Though your sins be as scarlet, God will wash them white as snow. This is the miracle. This is the wonder. This is the scandal or the shock of God's grace. It is truly out of this world, for no one in this world would have thought of something like this. And here's the good news for sinner and saint alike. Grace is available. Shout it, sing it, tell it, share it. Grace is there for you. Above all else, believe it, for in believing your life will be changed. You see, 
when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any contest to see who is more deserving of God's grace because no one deserves it. It's merited, unmerited favor. You can't deserve it. There will only be one contest in heaven. When we look back and we see what we were before, when we see the pit from which he rescued us, when we recall how confused we were and how we needed a revelation for God, and when we remember how God reached out and he hired us, if you will, he welcomed us into his family and how he held us in his hand. And when we see him face to face, the man who loved us gave himself for our sins. The only contest I think we'll probably be having is to see which one will sing the loudest, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, the saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Can you imagine what that day's going to be? Can you imagine how meaningless the comparison will be on that day? Can you imagine how much we will regret to a certain extent, even though I know there's no regret in heaven, uh, but maybe just a, why did I worry about that? Why did I worry about that? Listen, it's all about us and him. It's not about what the other person is dealing with or going through. Grace will handle all of that. And because grace does that, grace is scandalous. The scandal of grace is simply this. It levels the playing field and it makes us all on the same plane. Praise God. I encourage you tonight, if you need grace, it's available. And for those of you that have received grace, just rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep and, and just be glad that grace is still available to others. And grab a hold of that 5 p.m. worker for you, those of you that started at 6 a.m. or 3 uh, or 9 a.m. or noon or 3 p.m. Just grab that last hour worker and say, welcome to the family. That's the expression of grace. God bless you all. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for this night. Go with each person, I pray, in the wonderful name of the Lord.